Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Um, Bradley Hope has written an extraordinary story about a young Korean, Mexican, American, Ivy League idealist who takes on possibly the world's worst regime. I think Bradley would go with the world's worst regime, and we will talk about why they're so bad, North Korea. It is an extraordinary journey he then goes on, this young Korean, Mexican-American, to try to liberate people and eventually topple the regime in North Korea with hair-raising and sometimes humorous and sometimes very tragic consequences for um, many people, including ultimately himself. Um, It's also a story of a personal relationship of the protagonist with the author and with many other people in uh, the worlds of politics and power and startups and the Korean-American community in America and the Korean community in Korea and elsewhere in the world. A personal story of personal relationships, a story of geopolitics. So there's much to cover there, and let's get right to it. Uh, Bradley Hope, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. And let's just begin with a simple question. Tell me about Adrian Hong. Well, Adrian Hong is this, um, such a, such a fascinating character. You know, I met him in, in the oddest way. I was in Libya, um, covering the civil war. And I wrote this story about this young 18 year old Korean American who joined the rebels on his spring break. He showed up in Cairo and hitchhiked into Libya. And then he found like a, a battalion of rebels and joined them. As one does. Yeah, as one does. So I wrote the story, and and um, as happens also when you're a journalist, often the story that goes most viral is not your like deepest story that you've ever written. And so that story caught Adrian's eye, and he wrote me saying, oh, I'm actually coming in and out of Libya. I want to help this guy get home to his family. And that was kind of the beginning of this uh, relationship where I was trying to figure out who is this guy. He's uh, He was wearing a, a suit in Libya um, with a tie, you know, he was, something about him was just stood out and he had a kind of mysterious air about him. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I think my, my, my imagination was peaked from the beginning. And I even wondered, is he a spy? You know, what, is he a tourist? You know, is he a rich tourist? I don't know. And um, so, but what I, what I grew to understand is that he was um, a, a lifelong passionate uh, activist, especially around North Korea, but also about around any kind of totalitarian state in the world. And, and the reason he was in Libya was research. He was there. He had a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a direct purpose for being there, which was he was um, helping out with a charity that was getting people out of Libya into um, Jordan for medical care. But in reality, he was there for research. And he even said it to me later on that he considered Libya to be a dress rehearsal for North Korea. And um, but but I kept meeting him over the years, and I just could never quite put my finger on it, and I couldn't tell if he was actually we doing might, anything. Yeah. Sorry, we might interject for those now confused. He considered it a dress rehearsal for North Korea because it was a tyrannical regime whose people had been largely out of touch with the world, and it had fallen all at once and had to make itself into a country. And what were the consequences of that? He, it's hard to find a good template for that situation. And he was looking for model. And also Libya was to some extent a hermit kingdom as well, just like North Korea, because under Gaddafi, 
it was a highly controlled state. You know, there, there was no freedom of expression. Education was tightly controlled. Travel was tightly controlled. Um, it was a very much an internal economy, more so than like a global kind of part of the global scene, in part because of Gaddafi was so involved in terrorism and things like that, and he was sanctioned. Um, so it, it was also about what happens on the ground when there's no political history, really, and you have to build it from scratch, you know, that kind of thing. He was fascinated by that. Right. So, so he's picking pretty well. It's a good idea, but it's also implicitly stating he's putting himself forward as someone who is going to build the new North Korea, or at least assist in building the new North Korea. Who is this guy to be doing this? Well, he has credentials by this point, because um, basically in Yale, he created this group. Um, he was the co-founder of something called Liberty in North Korea, which went, went on to become a, a major North Korea related activist and, and kind of um, human rights advocacy group. And so he and he he became well known in Washington. You know, all the North Korea experts would have known Adrian from his events or from him knocking on their door, asking for ideas. Um, he he then he went on to become a TEDx fellow and was part of the uh, initial crop of those fellows. And so he, he was somebody with credentials. Um, but obviously, you know, when it comes to who's going to run or who's going to help overthrow North Korea, he was you know, at best, a Korean American with interest. And he wasn't technically American, but we say Korean American because he was culturally American, even though he had a Mexican passport. Yeah, his parents had been kind of on both sides of the border. And he, he, happened, <clears throat> he happened to be born in Mexico, but he'd really been part of the S San Diego, was it San Diego high school scene? Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> So I think, you know, and in some ways it's quite interesting in the in the in the community of people focused on North Korea and, and among activists and everything. There's actually not a really vibrant part that's pushing for aggressive action. You know, it's actually a very thin sliver as compared with other things like, for example, Libya. For many years, it had a government in exile um, that was that was saying they were the true, you know, um, that they should be the true leaders of, of Libya. But North Korea hasn't had that kind of history, um, I think, in large part because it, it was it, it, there's a country just below it that thinks it should be the, the ruler of the Korean peninsula. And then North Korea thinks the opposite. So so it, it's hard to have a government in exile for North Korea. Yeah, it's kind of a Germany model that like East Germany will fall. West Germany sort of absorbs it. I think implicitly that's what the West's hopes will happen in the Koreas. But there's very little interest in what what used to be called regime change before that turned out to have more complex consequences. Yeah, and I think with North Korea, the comp the, the the complexity of it are so uh, are so much worse in a way because it's been it's been it's existed for so long. It's really solidified, and you know even even things like the average height of a North Korean is lower than the average height of a South Korean because of the way that you know, the, the lack of nutrition, the underdevelopment over the years, like they're almost branching out in different directions. Just to get back to Adrian, I want to hold that thought, but to get back to Adrian for a moment, at his heart, or at least in his initial impetus, he's very compassionate. It's really about individual suffering of Koreans at the bottom of the ladder, which is 
a lot of Koreans in North Korea. Like there's a lot of people who are having a very, very bad time. And he's very interested in direct action to a point of helping escapees. And that takes up an interesting first part of your book. So please talk about that a minute and then we'll get into the geopolitics again. So, you know, I think he was kind of bursting at the seams from the get-go. You know, he he created this group and it was about spreading awareness and he was involved in a documentary and, you know, campus activism. But I think he quickly felt it was a very unsatisfying uh, approach to something that seemed so pressing. Like, you know, in a sense, numerically, it's even today one of the most pressing human rights crises on earth because of the number of people in prison camps or in in this kind of brutal class system um, that are, are living in the, the worst possible conditions. So he immediately started trying to think of ways to do active measures. And so the first idea was to use some of the money that they were collecting on these campus bake sales and things to fund these um, shelters along the border. And then as soon as those shelters were starting to get funded, he took a trip out there and he and he started to think about how could I uh, do something even more ambitious, you know, help actual escapees make their way from North Korea out of China and into a place that would immediately allow them to either seek asylum or travel to South Korea, where any North Korean, if they show up in South Korea, can, is instantly given a passport as a Korean citizen. Um, and so... Around this time, um, George W. Bush uh, uh, passed some legislation that made it possible for North Koreans to seek asylum in America more easily, and, and there was a budget attached. And so one of his first missions was he he went to the, one of these shelters, and he took a group, and he showed up at the um, the consulate in uh, Shenzhen, and, um, and um, just sort of showed up and said, these guys are North Koreans, and they want to come to America. And it was right after that bill had been passed, and so they accepted them. Um, but I think he didn't really kind of uh, he wasn't clued in on how reluctantly they accepted him because they, they, there's you know the U.S. embassy system isn't meant to be a kind of underground railroad for people. You know that there are one-off cases. They don't have the facilities. You know all the kind of obvious you know reasons. And so on his second attempt showing up again, they actually denied him entry with his with the group of North Koreans he was with. And, and they told him, you know, try Beijing, maybe you can talk to UNICEF or someone else. And they opted to do that, but they were arrested, all of them. And, um, and, and Adrian really kind of got out uh, by the skin of his teeth because there are many people who are involved in that kind of activity and they don't get to come out of jail very quickly. But he was able to use that kind of um, political network he built up as an activist to get, you know, people active during Christmas holidays of that year. And they all got out in the end. That's so many interesting tensions right there, because he's fundamentally motivated by um, the plight of desperately poor and abused Korean citizens and doesn't seem to realize or appreciate or perhaps not even care about the geopolitical reality, because when you say, you know, the, the consulate in Shenzhen, or I'm, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, it's the town in North Korea. Um, it, is, it is, excuse me, it's a town in China where the U.S. consulate is. And so he's showing up with North Korean refugees in a place where they're more interested in relationships with the number one other superpower in the world, China. 
and <laughs> this is just going to be a headache for all concerned. And he kind of doesn't care because he has passion for these individuals. And he doesn't really care about these geopolitical realities because he feels they're kind of cruel, it seems. So spend, spend a moment spend a moment on the realities of life for the Koreans at the bottom of the rung, really what these people are going through and what he's seeing, and then that tension point against geopolitics. The, I mean, there's a uh, amazing... Um, body of of work around the experience of these escapees explaining how they made it out you know and it's like these are stories unlike any story you've ever heard you know the 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 deprivation they have to go through the 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 loss of hope and then you know even like a, in getting across the border almost making it and then being sent back to the beginning and it takes another two years to get back to that border again you know my mother sold me into slavery my sister was beaten for days. I had to pick rice out of human waste to survive. This is like typical stuff you encounter in these. Yeah. And 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 and, and um, one of the books that was inspiring to Adrian, and I find it inspiring too, is called The Aquariums of Pyongyang. It's the account of this young boy who was actually born in Japan, came to North Korea with his family, and then his family fell out of favor. You know, they, they came on a dream that this was the promised land and, and it, they found it to be not what it is. And they ended up in this um, political prison camp and then he eventually got out. But that the account of that political prison camp really will, will stay with anyone who's experienced it. It's very much uh, reminiscent of what you would what you would read about Auschwitz and places like that. I mean, this is like there wasn't systematic extermination, but there was the treatment, the, the mistreatment of people almost as like um, machines and pushed to the very edge and given the very minimum that they could ever have, you know, no joy in that life. And um, so that kind of literature was actually really proliferating as well at the time that Adrian was coming up into this um, field. And um, now on the other hand, of course, North Korea is is really viewed by the rest of the world as a problem because of its nuclear weapons. And, and I think that's the tension. You know, for him, he was thinking, you can't wait around for human rights, you know, no matter what the what the consequences, in a sense, we have to do the right thing by these hundreds of thousands of people who are in this position, even millions. And um, and of course, global political leaders just don't look at it that way. And, and, and George W. Bush, with that passing of that bill, was a very small gesture in honor of those human rights, you know, uh, but ultimately it was never going to change things. And I, you couldn't say that even tens of thousands of North Koreans made it out because of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that compassion, that somewhat romantic view, that sense that an individual can make a difference takes him towards saving ordinary Koreans, towards challenging the U.S. government at the embassy level. Um, and then it takes him further and talk about the next step on his journey. So, so you know, he he actually quit the the link Liberty North Korea very quickly and very abruptly, and it was a huge shock to people in the group because this was almost like the founder, the real founder of the group. He was only in it for a couple of years, and he immediately felt the the boundaries of what a group like that could do, and so he set off on a more um, independent uh, mission. And so he along the way, this is where he ended up in, in the TED. Um, fellows program, but he was working on uh, a lot more secretive stuff. You know, how do we use technology to 
bring information into closed societies and, you know, always finding different donors to help him with these causes, but never quite enough to make enough of a difference. And so I think he just kept bumping up against his limitations, whether it's the funding or it's the, you know, ability to get other people to see things the way he did. And um, so it, it led him to kind of start in a very almost kind of bit by bit creating this secondary, completely secret life when it comes to North Korea. And that meant um, constantly traveling around the world, meeting North Korean defectors wherever possible, um, working with other like-minded people, kind of the more radical fringe of the North Korea activism community. There are people in, for example, in South Korea who go to the border and they put these balloons up that, that drop into North Korea with um, USB sticks of like, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world and in South Korean entertainment and that kind of thing. And so he just started drifting closer and closer to this kind of, uh, you know, almost like a, a freedom fighting underground organization approach to North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, how effective was he? Well, you know, in the sense of, you know, I think if you could, if you spoke to a North Korean uh, escapee who was helped by Adrian, the answer is, this is like, I'm the most amazing person, they changed my life. If you look at it from like a numerical standpoint about the number of North Koreans that were helped, you know, it's not going to be a number that's going to really change any kind of macro equation. But I think, so I think he had a huge impact on, on a smaller group of people. And, and perhaps, you know, you could argue that, uh, and, and as this developed even further later on in the story, he, he did sort of reveal that the North Korean regime was not as, as invincible as it might appear, you know, that it had its weaknesses, its chinks in the armor, and that these, um, the leaders of the country are not the, the um, invincible deities that they make themselves out to be. Which, which, which is the kind of um, impact that you can never quite measure what that impact is, but there's something that something has happened, you know. And that is a, an interesting dimension of the book as well: the nature of North Korean communist totalitarianism, which is a generational government that not just terrorizes its people on a daily basis, but also travels on an air of 100% invincibility. You know, Saddam Hussein on his worst day has nothing on these guys, right? You know, and that's a that's an astonishing thing about the regime and the world's tolerance of the regime, I suppose, for someone like Adrian. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where the more you learn about it, research it, speak to people who left North Korea, it just sounds... On one end, it sounds kind of um, almost funny at times. And I guess that's where you get the humor around, you know, Team America, World Police and the interviews, some of those kind of uh, approaches to North Korea. But the reality is um, much graver and scarier than that. It's it's a place where um, of utter mundanity and 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 where 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 everything is designed to exhaust you mentally at all times. You know, even when you're done with work, there's more work to be done. And if you fall behind on it, you know where you can end up, you know, and the caste system, mm -hmm. this kind of caste system called Songbun is, is so extraordinary. It's so numerical. It's, it's got a whole equation and a formula behind it and, and the, an endless bureaucracy administers it. And so it's, it's, it's kind of, 
the worst part of George Orwell, you know, um, and 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 it's it's amazing to see that it still exists in our world today. You know, it's not literature. Yes, and the um, the default punishment is murder, both in the country and abroad. There are numerous assassinations which you detail. I mean, you can even argue that um, murder is almost like the more passionate, uh, compassionate approach because. If you end up in one of these prison camps, you're you're you're, you're worked down to your bones, you know, and yeah. you lose any any kind of light in your life. And there's, I mean, even children working in coal mines, you know, uh, and and things like that. So, um, and 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 the most horrifying punishments. And and if you die in a prison camp, they they have truly special and terrible ways to make you die in prison camps too, you know. Um, but, but then also the other thing that's amazing about it, and, and in some ways those comedic approaches to North Korea really don't capture the graveness of North Korea, but they also don't capture the kind of scary efficacy of North Korea. They, they have the most effective um, counterfeiting of $100 bills historically. They've done um, extraordinary amounts of, of smuggling and, and ev- evading you know, all the sanctions of the great powers of the world. They managed to get by just fine you know, in some ways. Um, and they have this assassination squad that is um, kind of just brilliant in their terror, you know, the way that they killed. And this became a part of the story, Kim Jong-nam in, um, Jong-nam in uh, Malaysia. I mean, who could come up with something so ornate? The half-brother of, the, the half of Kim Jong-un, the head of North Korea. And third in the yeah, yeah, exactly. He's kind of like it's it's even funny that he's a target because he's obviously kind of not a serious person in any way, but because of this super quirky um, system where they've combined you know uh, communism with a kind of like ancient Egyptian approach to like the Sun King kind of dynasty, um, this guy is important just because he's in the bloodline. And so that, and that's why he's of any interest to anyone. But it, it's amazing that he was. It, it shows you just how important bloodline is in North Korea that they would go through this length, you know. And they didn't just kill him. I mean, they could have just killed him on the street with a gun or something. But instead, they created this elaborate system where there was these women who had no idea what they were doing. One of them put one chemical on his face, not knowing. The other one put another chemical, and it turned out to be, you know, a chemical weapon activated. And, and it worked, you know, I think there's, there's few assassinations as, as, uh, ornate and, and unnecessarily ornate, you know? Yeah. And bone chilling too. And, and meant to be popularized. And this is a, an interesting and kind of underappreciated dimension of the regime perhaps, but they seem to be evolving with, um, the times they're deeply involved in ransomware their response to that movie, The Interview, which was a comic take on North Korea, in a thin-skinned way, they hacked Sony and spilled all these dirty secrets that people were trying to keep from getting out about various actors or deals or contracts and decided to humiliate people. But they also they deal a lot of drugs around the world. When I lived in Singapore, I remember... Um, the Malaysian embassy uh, had a scandal up in Malaysia. There was a scandal with the North Korean embassy because they were dealing hashish out of the embassy that they had obtained from the PLO in exchange for weaponry. And so, they, you know, they were, they were dealing guns. They were paid in hash. And that's how they paid their diplomats. So they decided to corrupt Malaysia 
you know, because they didn't have foreign exchange or couldn't pay these people or because they kind of felt like it. Yeah. And, and you just one note on that um, hack of Sony, you know, how, how effective that was is amazing. There hasn't really been another cinematic approach to North Korea ever since. You know, they, they, that was such a scary thing for the Hollywood industry that they that everyone is like, we're done with North Korea. We're, that, that's too risky for us, you know. And it's, yeah. so that's just a good example of their asymmetric approach to things. It works. You know, it works really well. And they and they've stolen enormous amounts of money through through ransomware. They hacked the, you know, the the interbank transfer system. They they convinced Bangladesh, like one of the world's poorest countries, to you know mistransfer money to them. So it's really kind of impressive in a way. Yeah, they've kept up with the times. And to circle back to Adrian and his story, um, the great powers kind of haven't. They they I wouldn't say they like North Korea, but they're comfortable with this multi-generational tyranny because they know what it is or they know how to deal with it. But increasingly, it's getting further and further from what they know how to deal with because 85 missile launches this year, lots of nuclear weapons, ransomware, um, runaway viruses that the North Koreans create but can't really control. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. But it seems like none of the great powers have figured out a way. And obviously, Trump tried to break through in his own inimitable way with a new approach to Kim with, how should we describe the results? Well, you know, I think in some ways it was uh, actually a kind of interesting approach because at least it acknowledged from the outset that this is a personality-driven country. You know, there's this family that matters more than anything else. It's not, there's no, like all these efforts over the years that, that are almost, you know, just cumbersome. They, they didn't really have any effect because they were approaching North Korea like a country with like a, you know, a whole political class. But in reality, you know, I, I think that was the good thing about Trump's approach. But in reality, the execution was a disaster. And, and also the truth is North Korea knew at all times it's not going to give up its nuclear weapons. You know, there, there is no scenario where North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons. In fact, Adrian's adventure in Libya is even more proof of that. They watched what happened in Libya, which, which you know, they um, acquiesced to the demands of the global powers and they were let back into the circle. But as soon as there was an uprising, suddenly there was a no-fly zone, all the things that made it possible for the Libyans to take back their country. So North Korea instantly sees the parallel, you know, just like he saw the parallel, they did too. And um, so Trump was never going to, it was never on the table that they would give up the nuclear weapons. They thought they could play him because he was so interested in, in the publicity of it. Um, but in the end, there was enough people in the actual apparatus of the U.S. government that said, look, we're not going to be doing some crazy deal right now where they get to keep their nuclear weapons and then we let them back into the, into the global order. And so it, right. it just sort of fizzled out. That's the way I'd say it. Right. So nuclear um, North Korea has arrived at the ideal of nuclear weapons, possess them, probably don't use them, but you might and never give them up because it's the ultimate status symbol or the ultimate fear symbol. And Adrian, meantime, is evolving in the modern world using technology, um, cell phones, websites, TED Talks, um, startup models. 
all kinds of other things to further his goal. So let's pick up his story a little bit more. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think Adrian actually saw that North Korea used asymmetric means and was very effective. And he himself, I think, was looking at it the same way. You know, he was thinking, what are my what, what are the asymmetric means from the other side of the equation, from the kind of activist underground organization side? He was very driven and very inspired by, um, you know, the great people of, of human rights advocacy, like Martin Luther King. So he, you know, he had a great sense of mission and it, and it, it infused every part of his life. And, and he really, there was a lot of self-sacrifice. I mean, every dollar that he earned from, he was a smart guy. He, he managed to find ways to make money. He would pour right back into these causes, you know, um, and they were all kind of running off his credit card. And, and that, so what I learned in the course of reporting was the Adrian I saw, the slick guy wearing a suit was actually concealing like, you know, debt. And, and it was not, he was not a rich guy. You know, he was actually somebody that was always trying to hustle here and there to make it all work. And, um, but anyways, he, you know, he, one of his first uh, evolutionary steps was he created something called the Joseon Institute, which was um, interesting because it's, it has a very provocative mission, which was to create the blueprints for the, for the, for North Korea after the Kim regime. And so it was, what do we do? How do we get the, the um, cell phone network opened up immediately after the fall of the regime and, how do we, um, you know, reform the education system? Every every little mundane detail, you know, studying how does the water system work in North Korea and Pyongyang, and how do we keep control of that? And um, so it was a very provocative thing. And, and actually, at the time that Adrian was doing that, he he told me because I knew him during this period that he really believed that the regime was going to fall at any minute. And so I think at that period of time. And, and, and actually, at any period of time, there's a group of people who believe the Kim regime may be collapsing as we speak because it, they, because of this idea that it's impossible that it could keep working. You know, our sanctions must be crippling them and, you know, people are going to rise up. But I think what he realized during this kind of hopeful period was that nothing is happening. You know, there was no uprising. The the repression was so, so well structured that. It was it was hard for anything to kind of catch fire in the in the even even when um, conditions were so bad and everyone was grumbling you know it's in secret there was not enough of a there was no room to kind of build a movement to take over the country mm -hmm. and so I think that's where the next phase um, came and and in and, and the end to footnote being a modern guy he's really come to appreciate media power not only is he cultivating an eminent American journalist in London and probably cultivating several other journalists. He is suggesting the regime is fallible and can fail. And the more times you put that out there, the more you humiliate them, the more that narrative takes on a kind of reality against the North Korea is an invincible, closed, forever regime. And he's doing that kind of cleverly. But then he kicks it up a notch with action to go with the media power. I think he he started to dial it up too fast, you know, because so so what happened was he started to have this kind of concept that, um, you know, defectors uh, who are sort of from the, um, you know, from the hinterlands of North Korea who cross the border, those people 
it's it's a it's a it's important just to help them you know get out and get somewhere safe but the ones that are most effective for his bigger cause are the elites you know the elite defectors and anybody who's connected to North Korea so even long before the assassination of Kim Jong Nam he met Kim Jong Nam's son Kim Han Sol you know he found he always find a way to get introduced to people because he knew that these people could come in handy they could be important later on and um so and in fact, the, the first big opportunity that came for his for his underground organization was was the assassination of Kim Jong Nam because Kim Han Sol, the son, called Adrian as one of the people on his you know he he didn't have a big network you know this young this young guy and he, but he did know Adrian so he called Adrian right away it's like something you know, he's seeing on on television that his dad's been assassinated and he was feeling the risk because he even reported to the group that their bodyguards disappeared and and there was a fear because with Kim Jong Nam dead Kim Han Sol was the kind of next in line you know so they, they needed to exterminate the whole line not just one person and so he called Adrian and then Adrian called Christopher Ahn who we is a big character in the book as well who was happened to be on vacation he was one of these kind of volunteers that Adrian collected and and like you said before he collected me in a sense you know he he this I was somebody that someday could be useful to him I guess and, and the same thing goes for anybody he would meet. You know, he would see, oh, this person, this is the purpose they could serve later on. Christopher Ahn was more of a volunteer that he could call upon to, to join in missions. And they they ended up flying uh, Kim Hansel and his family, his mother and his sister to Taipei and kind of looking after them until the CIA walked up and, and essentially took them away. Um, but, that, but that put them on the map because... Now they, it was clear that an underground kind of organization was there that existed around North Korea. And that was the, really the first big step up. And of course, Christopher films it and publicizes it and throws it into that media world. And Yes, and it was broadcast around the world. It was broadcast around the world. People didn't know exactly what was going on, but, but my, my former colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, they were immediately entranced. Many people were contacting this group. They called themselves initially uh, Cholima Civil Defense. Later on, they renamed themselves to Free Josan, which can be confusing sometimes. But um, and and this group was really kind of um, you know out of a movie in a sense because they they had this website. It was super mysterious and kind of simple. They would have these very um, uh, you know cryptic messages about people that had been rescued and situations and and kind of uh, quite romanticized pleas to North Koreans. And there was email addresses you could reach them on that were said to be secure. Um, and they also did some other funny things. They they um, they launched a um, a visa program for North Korea. It's basically saying, in the future liberated North Korea, you will have access. So you can buy your visa in advance using cryptocurrency. So they were doing some quite edgy experimental things, and and they and their work was was. Uh, was picked up because they started getting these inbound messages from people that saw what they had done with Kim Han Sol. And so that was kind of where it starts to pick up speed. You know, there's, um, I, I, I would be the first to admit that I don't know everything they did. Let's just pause there for a moment. I realize that in about five or 10 minutes, we'll be able to take questions. So if you have any questions, if you're watching along with us, please put your discussion in the text chat on YouTube and we'll get to them in a few minutes. So I broke you off. No, no. So anyways, basically I want to kind of get to the end of the story so we can get to some questions, but they, 
they started doing more and more aggressive things, you know, uh, more and more rescues. We talk in the book about the, um, the Italian, the embassy in Italy uh, managed to escape with help from people connected to Adrian. And, and then it, it really, the, it crescendos with this Spain situation where they get a call, they get a message, not a call from the, the uh, commercial attache who's telling them that he wants to defect with his family. And that in fact, he wants to bring the whole embassy. It's not just him, you know, and this is like the most tantalizing opportunity for someone like Adrian, because this is a really aggressive step up. If you take the whole embassy, if they all defect, you can actually keep the embassy and that could be the center of the government in exile. So there was this, this kind of fantastical vision started to kind of unfurl in front of him. And um, I think that's perhaps why the risk of it, you know, didn't, uh, didn't really hit him the way it should have. Um, and I just, what, he's getting better and better prizes and it makes you more and more reckless. Like a, there's a solid prize in bringing in a North Korean. Whoa, somebody in the Kim bloodline, major prize, diplomat in Rome, who I guess also contacted them through the website, right? And they go to Venice, meet this guy in Rome. Um, it's not as clean an escape as they might like. The guy's wife doesn't really want to go. There's a daughter. It's... It, it's kind of a mess, but in the world's eyes, a trophy. And then apparently, and it isn't clear this is actually what happened, correct? This attache in Madrid shows up and says, we want to go. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's, there's, you know, the information that's flowing here is, is not continuous. It's fragmentary. It's, it's even hopeful to some extent. So there's a lot of room for misunderstandings and for also not getting a true assessment of what this guy has prepared. You know, what's how much of this has been discussed in the embassy, you know, which, and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, now one other important thing is that the group was trying to also preserve, there was some risk mitigation. So, but the risk mitigation was for the families of defectors, not for themselves or for their cause, to be honest. So, so, the, 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 the undoing of the Spain mission was that they wanted to make it look like a kidnapping. And so they went to the same kind of a shop in Madrid, which I visited, that sells props to the movie industry in Spain. And they have fake guns and they have, and they have other things. They have, you know, it's kind of a mixture of a, a movie prop store and a kind of uh, army navy store. And, and they bought all this equipment and they, and they essentially stormed in there with the idea that there's cameras everywhere and that there might even be cameras beaming live images back in North Korea. So they, they wanted to create this kind of plausible deniability that anyone was defecting. Um, in the case that it didn't go the way that it would go in the most ambitious version, right? The most ambitious version was taking over this embassy. But in the, in the case that it's the commercial attache himself and his family, they wanted to preserve the ability for him to be, for it to be confusing enough that they didn't punish his family back in North Korea because they, they, they do that. And let's spend a minute on the they at this point. Here we are storming an embassy in a foreign country, and we are this Mexican, Korean, American, Ivy League, TEDx guy, his buddy who's done the job in Taiwan or getting the Kim Kim's legacy out of Taiwan into Hong Kong, out of the country. Um, then a um, couple other volunteers also young, I take it, Korean-Americans, one North Korean escapee, the major qualifications for them to be this kind of 
quick acting SWAT SEAL team, tick six team is one of them was once in the army or the Marines. That's about it. Yeah. And even the people who were in the military were, were not like special operators. You know, they, they, like in the case of Christopher on, he was a kind of a patriotic uh, young man who wanted to serve in the Marines. And, you know, he did, he did intelligence, you know, let's go storm an embassy. Shall we tell the people how that worked out or should we make them buy the book? Oh, let's tell them how that worked out. So what happened was um, they, they stormed inside, they, they took control but they missed one woman who uh, clearly was not briefed on any kind of defection. And she jumped from the balcony. And, and at this point, nobody from the Free Joseon Chichilama Civil Defense knew about this woman. She injured herself. So she was quite a mess, blood, and she had an injured hip. She managed to limp into the road in the middle of Madrid. And I went to this neighborhood. It's the quietest neighborhood. Through a back door they didn't seem to know existed. Yeah, and and understandably, it's like a very obscure door. But of course, you know they're not reviewing blueprints of the North Korean embassy, right? Like you might want to, you might want to face the door. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. But she she managed to get to a clinic. You know, somebody stopped by. The police came. When the police came initially, they thought she was Chinese. So they tried to call the Chinese embassy. The Chinese. It was clear right away that she didn't speak Chinese. And eventually, they used kind of Google Translate to figure out that she was Korean or. And, and eventually North Korean. And then she was saying kind of crazy things like people are being eaten in the embassy. And, you know, this, the Spanish police are like, we have no idea what to do, but they, they showed up at the embassy and uh, Adrian came out pretending to be a North Korean official. But really that was the moment when everything turned because the attache completely freaked out. And, and, and it was clear that there was going to be no defection. So Adrian and his crew, they managed to escape using the embassy cars um, you know, they were given the keys by the attache and they, they actually got out of the country. They got back to America and they first thing they did was go to the FBI and tell them, hey, this is going to sound crazy, but we just had this thing happen in Spain. We wanted to let you know, because, you know, if you get a call about this, you need to know from us first. And um, again, a kind of fatal mistake, because, you know, just understanding how international law enforcement cooperation works. These guys are not privileged. You know, they don't have the backing of the U.S. government. They're just volunteers doing things that are way um, outside of, you know, the law to some extent, um, you know, you know, showing up in these embassies and stuff. And so especially under the illusion of a kidnapping, if, if you if you do a kidnapping in another country, you can't tell the FBI about it and it's OK. And um, so obviously what they were trying to do is explain it wasn't a kidnapping. And can you please make sure that you communicate this appropriately? But the Spanish, perhaps a little bit um, jaundiced by the experience of the CIA during the 9-11 era, where people were literally swept off the streets of Italy um, and rendered to foreign prisons, they thought this was some sort of a American cowboy operation, like it was backed by the U.S. government. So they, they, they pursued it with the full aggression of this being a kind of illegal U.S. intelligence operation. And as a result... Uh, an extradition request was sent to the U.S. and Adrian managed to just barely dodge it. And Christopher Ahn, who happened to show up at his house, was arrested. And he spent um, a significant point of time, period of time in jail and then house arrest. And now he's fighting extradition. And Adrian and the rest of the group have kind of gone underground. And it's it's actually pretty amazing in the 21st century to be able to disappear you know, off the grid so so effectively. And he's been he's been off the grid for three years now. 
Can you talk a little bit about, more about Christopher Ahn and how he got involved? This, I believe, is a question from the audience. Um, what is so Christopher Ahn is is a really amazing uh, guy. He he was um, his his father passed away very suddenly when he was young. He became the man of the house very early on and uh, took over the family garment business, which he was running while he was in high school and and even when he was in boot camp, he was like reviewing swatches of clothes. He went he went to the Marines. Um, and when he came back uh, from Iraq, which he did a, 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 some tours there, he was looking for what to do next, and he wanted to go to business school. But along the way, he met Adrian, and Adrian at that time was kind of in this in-between phase. And Christopher was was attracted to him because he had this sense of mission and he, and, and volunteer. Uh, you know, he, he had a history of creating volunteer organizations like Link, and so so Christopher told him. Look, if you ever need help, I'm always I'm around. I would love to be part of something bigger than just like you know starting my own business. And and over the years, he was kind of I would say a relatively fringe member of Adrian's group. He wasn't uh, a decision maker. He wasn't part of the strategic discussions, and he would just show up as a volunteer when when called. So he showed up in Taipei by coincidence. He was in the Philippines, so he was the closest person to Taipei. And then and then later on, he got a call saying, "Hey, we've got a big project." He, he was in Italy, as we wrote in the book, um, and he was in Europe elsewhere as well for other missions that we don't know the full details about. But he got a call saying, there's something going on in Spain. Can you come help out? And his first answer was, no, actually, I'm busy. But at the last minute, he said, actually, you know what? I can come. I can I can delay my meetings by a few days. And, he, and so he was always the guy that would come on these missions and was the emotionally intelligent one. You know, he wasn't, despite the fact that he's a, he's a, um, a, a retired Marine, He's not really the tough guy. He's actually the kind of the opposite. He's like the softy of the group. In the pictures, he looks kind of scary with sunglasses and everything, but he's the exact opposite. And um, so it's almost like the most cruel ir- irony of all that he's the one that's suffered the worst consequences so far. Well, by the way, uh, I do have a, a question for our audience. Adrian Hong, are you watching? <laughs> yeah, please let us know. Yes, but failing that... Um, Talk a little bit about how you feel about Adrian Hong at this point. Here's this interesting, shadowy character you knew off and on over a period of years. And now you've really dived deep into his rather unusual life and his relationships with others. How do you feel about this, this person and what he was doing? You know, I think I've always been drawn to characters like Adrian who kind of, uh, they see that the world around us is man-made. It's not like we're we're going up against the laws of nature. You know these these status quo around things like geopolitics. And so I I definitely am attracted to that part of him. Um, I and and I liked him as a person. You know when I when I would spend time with him. You know I, I always found him to be very funny, down to earth. You know so he's not like a pretentious person. Very driven, but not pretentious. Um, but I do sometimes wonder about some of the decisions, like, you know, even the decision of being on the run. Uh, I think to myself, you know, even if you had to stay in jail and and be there, you could see your family for visitation, but you could also be writing. You could you could be writing a very influential, um, you know, account or uh, of your life of, of North Korea, of what you feel about North Korea, you know, so. And I, I do wonder about a lot of the decisions of the group itself, and especially over the years, because even the way that they communicated about themselves 
really set themselves up for this unbelievable consequence where their people could be going to prison in Spain and for a misunderstanding, really, and, and they'd be separated from their families. I think they've taken on, they took on too much risk and without, without the, the requisite reward, you know? Yeah. Um, as a reader, he's, um, he's a very interesting um, character who's hard to come to a conclusion about because absolutely his heart is in the right place. And he has a romantic vision about improving the world. And he does actually help people. He doesn't just talk. But as you say, he walked away from his first group. These were people who were working for absolutely no money, walking, you know, spending time away from their jobs and their families to be with Adrian. And Adrian walks away. And Adrian is incomplete to you. He's incomplete to Christopher. He's kind of incomplete to everybody because he's building this secret organization. Or possibly because he can't really commit all the way because... He's got a wife and kid, and he's on the run and abandoned them, too. So how am I supposed to feel about a guy like that? Is he a romantic who's sacrificing everything, or is he a kind of sociopathic narcissist? Or both? I mean, is, can you reach a conclusion about him? I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard for people to come to a final conclusion. But but it's he's the kind of person who, um, you know, I find him inspiring, and I also find uh, that I can't stop thinking about Adrian uh, over all these mm -hmm. years. And that was the that was the animating force behind writing this book. And, you know, I wrote two books previous to this, but this is the first book that I really felt something about it. You know, I felt hurt. I felt pain. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking to Christopher, I feel a lot of pain because his life has been so upended. And this guy is not the kind of person that deserves consequences like this. And I also feel something about North Korea and about the people of North Korea that, you know, it's so easy for us to just not really care or not really pay attention to it. And so I find, uh, you know, in the end, if, if I'm putting it on a kind of board, I'm, I'm going to fall in the side that Adrian is a force for good in the world, even if it's just to show us things that are different than, than we were even comfortable believing, you know? There's a good question from the audience. You talk to his family. What do they tell you? How do they feel about him? I think every family member that's connected to somebody who's in this case is deeply in pain, you know, because they, they are suffering something that they didn't even sign up for. You know, even Adrian's family didn't have a full picture of what Adrian was up to. You know, it was a secret life. Um, you know, of course, it's not quite like having an affair, but to some extent, there's probably some similar emotions caught up in this. There elements of betrayal. Yeah, a betrayal, or that you that you didn't share yourself fully with us, and and let us and let us also know the risks that we were all taking on. Because Adrian is now, without fail, a kind of target of the North Korean regime for for the disrespect, and for the idea that um, you know they are not invincible, and so taking him out is actually you know, a totally reasonable thing for them to be, to be, to be expecting them to think. Right. And, and, and as a result, his family, you know, because in, in North Korea, they like to punish three generations of a family for these diplomats. They'll do the same for others, you know? So um, I think there's a lot of heartbreak, but there's also a lot of feeling like th this conflicted feeling that we all probably will feel where his, his humanism is, is unconditional, you know, his, his belief in, in the value of a single North Korean farmer who's, you know, living a terrible life and, 
you know, or somebody in a political prison, he, he cares about that one person more than we do. And so I think that is something that everyone feels about him too. You know, he's a very likable, charismatic person and, and it's easy to get caught up in his fervor to some extent. And, you know, you sort of, you wish that was the way the world could be organized with that level of compassion for the very small scaling out to everyone in the world. But it's not the way geopolitics is done, but you still wish it was. And so people have a lot of time for this guy. Even though he leaves a lots of messes, he gets forgiven again and again because the vision is so clear. But also, one of the things that's amazing about him is he also was as a reminder that the geopolitical approach doesn't work either. Because, in fact, the lack of action is what allowed North Korea to to bolster its defenses, to build up this empire that can hack countries and, and companies and can assassinate people. You know, if you look back at history, there were moments when a strategic decision could have been made that would have been a hard decision to make that could have slowed this development, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, if you had to guess, where is Adrian now? Where would you put him on the world? Even if I knew, I probably wouldn't say, but what I would say is I, sometimes when I think about him, I kind of, uh, this is a funny thought, but I, rem I remember the that opening scene of Better Call Saul, where he's like working in a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, or, or a Cinnabon, Cinnabon. Yeah. So I kind of think of him as being somewhere in the middle of America, a little town working there. And people think of him as somebody that he's that he's not, you know. That would be great. I was going with Libya myself because who knows what's going on in there and he has connections. But if you're listening, North Korea, I don't know anything. I'm wrong. <laughs> Go look for him in Libya. That's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, we have time for one last question from the audience. And while we wait for that, oh, good. We have a little more time than I thought my clock's running fast. Um, tell us a little bit about Project Brazen. You did this um, book and much of your current work under Project Brazen. You've left the Wall Street Journal. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what you hope to achieve. Well, so my um, longtime collaborator at the Wall Street Journal, Tom Wright, and I, we wanted to set out on our own. And we had this idea that, you know, you could do ambitious journalism independently. It's, it's perhaps a new opportunity that exists in a world that's so digital. And so we created this company, which is um, essentially a, uh, a high-end journalism studio. I say high-end because it's very in-depth work with big teams around the projects and we, we, we try to think of things as um, we, we try to worry about our audience. Where is the audience for a big story? So, so we're doing things in multiple formats. You know, so we, even with this, with this book, we made a short documentary. We made a podcast episode because we wanted to find interesting ways to reach people who, who access the world of nonfiction in different, in, through different ways. And so that's kind of our mission. And we're also so we're doing a lot of our own work, but we also partner with other journalists and they we provide them the resources, the team to make things that require resources like documentaries and podcasts. Okay. Um, we have two questions. First, uh, what can you say about North Korea's, the regime's buffoonish reputation? Why does that persist? And is that image changing? I think the first thing to ask is, do they consider it, do North Koreans themselves consider it buffoonish? Do they know how it often looks in the eyes of the world and do they care? Well, of course, in the eyes of a North Korean person, 
it probably doesn't come across buffoonish because it's it's so crafted, you know, and 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 the, and people's minds are so conditioned as well. I think the buffoonishness buffoonishness comes from the fact that um, in, in with so much power and and relative wealth, you know, they're not billionaires by the standards of you know Elon Musk or something, but they have a lot of money to do whatever they want with it, and they they kind of have followed like ridiculous pastimes. You know, obviously Kim Jong Il was, uh, you know, famous for importing an unbelievable amount of Quavassier brandy. And he was obsessed with movie making and had this whole industry of, of movies. At one point, they even kidnapped one of the most famous actresses from South Korea and, and, and her ex-husband, a director, and made them make movies, you know. So there's a lot of weird things that happen when you have so much power and so much money and so much, um, you know, the whole society is kind of built around you. So that is buffoonish. But in reality, it conceals this efficacy we talked about before, which is that they're not incompetent at what they do. And there's many dangerous people in in powerful positions in North Korea that are enacting these strategies around the world, whether it's counterfeiting money, um, smuggling drugs, selling weapons to countries that need to buy weapons without any questions asked. You know, they, they are a, a, a net force for negative in all ways in the world. And and, and in a way that's way bigger than what should be their impact. You know, they're this tiny country with, with relatively small resources because of lack of development, yet they're in our consciousness all the time. You know, we hear about them all the time. And, and even Barack Obama, when he was leaving office, he was most concerned about North Korea. And that was one of the briefings they gave. Like, look, this thing has been kind of left for too long and it's going to blow up at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. And in a sense, the buffoonishness, do we have such a thing as strategic buffoonishness? It does make it, you know, Putin has these moments too. There he is riding shirtless on a white horse or, um, what is it? Is it head of Tajikistan has like got a statue of himself playing chess. Basically it's hard to be a totalitarian dictator in a media age and not look a little buffoonish, but, um, you know, Ozymandias had it easy. Uh, but, uh, at the same time, that makes it easy for the world to laugh at them as much as they might dislike that. It take, it dials down the pressure a little bit. They look less like a threat by looking like a joke. Well, also, uh, it's actually very useful for North Korea to seem um, volatile and dangerous and, 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 and willing to, to go to the line, you know. So I think it's like this mad dog image of Gaddafi as well. It's, it's useful because then people don't want to test you. If you look reasonable and strategic, then they might start to think, uh, well, we can try these old techniques out, you know? Okay. Well, we will close on the most serious question of all, perhaps, for its neighbors. The recent missile tests, as I said, there have been something like 85 missile tests this year and a very aggressive posture from North Korea lately. Um, What do you make of that? What's behind that? And what is the United States doing? I mean, I think uh, I look at it in the kind of broader historical uh, context of it, it's it's almost like as regular as a, a kind of lunar cycle because they have to kind of get very aggressive, push the boundary as far as possible and then fall back. And then they go forward and they fall back because this is just the nature of how they establish and, and maintain this level of wariness about them and to, and to say you may be sitting around wargaming about the future of North Korea. Don't even think about it. We will we'll press all the red buttons at the same time. 
and when we, and mm-hmm. and they have to constantly demonstrate that they're not um, they're not equipped with World War II style weapons. That their nuclear program has made leaps and bounds over the years, and their missile technology has made leaps and bounds. So it's just a constant demonstration of that capability. Um, I don't think that they're you know preparing uh, any kind of action. It's just they have to keep showing that and keep making us feel on edge that they might be. One day they might just press a button and then here's a missile headed towards America. You know, they want to keep that image. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were talking earlier uh, before the show, you said that you've written about money and power and espionage. And really, you're writing about the way the world really works. You're sort of showing what's going on backstage or down in the engine room about the modern world for the ordinary reader. And that's what Project Brazen hopes to accomplish as well. Um Quickly in closing, what does this experience, Adrian against North Korea, tell us about the way the world works? Well, I think it, it goes back to what we were saying before, that that um, there's this kind of consensus, this status quo, this safe approach to things. And we tell ourselves that it's the best thing that we could be doing. But it, but it, 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 it hides the fact that a decisive action at some point could have actually change the course of history. You know, this kind of safe geopolitical game theory approach to things is kind of, uh, it's it's an attractive illusion. You know, it's, it's a dangerous approach to, to situations like North Korea. And, and I think, you know, just on that emotional level, it just, it's just a, a, a very powerful reminder that there's so many people in the world that are living in such deprivation and that we just go about our lives as normal all the time, you know, without, and I think I, I'm I, I'm I'm pushed by that thought that Adrian never quite got comfortable. You know, every day that would be kind of on his mind. He spent hours with these people, hearing every little story of their experience. You know, so it weighed on him, and as a result, it kind of weighs on me now a little bit more. Right. Everyone in this media-drenched age, everyone has a kind of sense and therefore responsibility for all of the world, and so. Big powers have attractive illusions. Adrian had attractive illusions. His, at least, are compassionate. And that is what makes for such a compelling tale in your book. Um, Our thanks to Bradley Hope for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating. Thank you for the excellent questions. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, Stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.